guys, this is Brother Jonathan back with another episode of The Woodshed, where we tell the truth even when it hurts. In today's episode, we want to talk about the old Lorenzo Dow and the modern carnival that we call church. Hang around and we'll get started. Brother Jonathan, I'm here with you, and, and today we've got a good topic. We've got something that, uh, that that's really striking, it's going to be informative, and then at the same time, hopefully leave you thinking a little bit. Uh, you know, Recently, which I, I read a lot of books, that's something that uh, is something that uh, I've developed over the years. Growing up wasn't a big reader, even in my early you know, 20s and all, not much of a reader. But now, uh, man, it's really taken off and I've really learned to love it. And uh, so trying to read through all the classics, I, I read anywhere between uh, 25 and about 50 books a year. 50 has been my, the most I've ever read in one year, uh, but always get in at least about 20. And uh, I found a different ways, you know, of course, the old paper book, you know, in the hands, flipping the pages, there's nothing quite like that. But then also just traveling, uh, you know, commuting and, and uh, the church that we pastor is about 20 minutes away from where we live. And uh, and so in that, the, the traveling back and forth or going to hospital visits, uh, running errands, things like that, I've discovered the ability to, to listen to the books that are recorded in the audio books. Uh, there's a plethora of options that are out there. And so take advantage of that as well to where you can uh, hear something other than, uh, you know, some, you know, uh, frosted tip uh, country boy with glitter butt jeans that's never seen a dirt road singing love songs about his truck and his hunting dog. And uh, don't care for that at all. And the rest of the modern music is, is pretty much trash as well. And so instead... Uh, thought, you know, hey, this is a good way to expose uh, myself to a lot of other things, you know, to, to get a lot more reading time in, you know, to where, you know, somebody reading to you, you get the same uh, experience as holding it and reading it as well. And so recently began the book To Kill a Mockingbird, which is a classic and something that's widely read. And, and in there, and you know, in the, you know, probably about chapter four or so, there's a reference to Lorenzo Dow. And when I heard the name, it, you know, it kind of sparked in me, you know, a remembrance of, of something uh, that's been previously learned. And, and so uh, I thought I'd share Mr. Lorenzo Dow, you know, that, that brought back all of the information that I knew of Lorenzo Dow. And here's a cultural reference to him. And the thing that most people don't understand about Lorenzo Dow is that he was a huge part of American culture during his time. He might have been the biggest star of his day. Lorenzo Dow was born around, uh, right around the Revolutionary War. And so uh, in the aftermath of that, as we're becoming less British colonies, more um, standing on our own as a nation, finding our own culture, our own heritage, figuring out what are we going to do with problems that we inherited from the British, who are our friends, who are not our friends, into this environment, Lorenzo Dow steps in. And like I said, during his life, there probably wasn't a bigger celebrity in America than Lorenzo Dow. His early life, Dow decided that he would be called a Methodist preacher, but he never really let the Methodists know about that. So he, he claimed them. They never claimed him. And, uh, and he had a lot of physical infirmities. He was, you know, he was known to have asthma, insomnia, which the way he acted, you know, is 
you know, that that's kind of a given. We could have guessed that. You know, he acted kind of like a sleep-deprived guy. And he didn't even ever have an official ordination, but he never let that stop him from spreading the gospel throughout the continent where God had blessed him. Now, old Lorenzo was definitely a eccentric guy. He was known to be very tall and skinny. He had a big old thick bushy beard that covered his chest and wild hair that they said had probably never saw a comb. And uh, he was quite a sight that you couldn't forget. He would have looked like one of those uh, Louisiana Robertson brothers. You know, once you saw him, you, you never could have quite got him out of your mind. Would have brought back uh, Phil Robertson memories. And he was known for his lack of poor hygiene. He didn't have good hygiene, never really owned a suit of clothes that fit well, and had no need for money whatsoever. In fact, this guy only ever had one suit of clothes at a time. When those wore out, he just relied on somebody else to take pity on him and give him another suit of clothes. He didn't, you know, sleep in people's houses or rent hotel rooms or anything if hotel rooms were available during the day. But what he would do is just simply sleep in the woods and he didn't even own a tent. He mostly traveled on foot. If they gave him a horse, he would just ride the horse until it died, get off and keep walking. And any money that he ever raised or was ever given to him, he either immediately gave it away to the needy or he used it to purchase Bibles, which he would then give away in his, uh, in his upcoming meetings. And uh, during a short stint as a circuit rider preacher, you know, covering uh, the Northeast, the Connecticut, Massachusetts, Vermont, you know, that area, he, he made quite a name for himself because he had a very wild style of preaching. And his critics would label him as Crazy Dow. He was known to be a very unpolished preacher. He didn't have a lot of formal education. And his sermons were outrageously a spectacle and just pure showmanship. Now, he was known to leap in and out of windows while preaching. He would jump on tables, climb trees, scream, beg, flatter, even start to insult the crowd. He would argue with himself. If he couldn't get an argument, he would just argue with himself and pose a question and then answer his own question. He would tell jokes and wild stories. And even once, he jumped out of a church window onto a horse and just rode off in the middle of his sermon. Never even finished the sermon. Just jumped out the window mid-sentence onto horseback and rode off into the sunset. That's how he was. He even once was, uh, was known to have hired a young boy who could play a trumpet to uh, climb a tree outside of the window of the church where he was preaching. And that night he was preaching on the second coming of the Lord and the trumpet shall sound and, and, uh, and the Lord will descend. And, and in that, he had it timed where when the boy heard the trigger word, the boy would blast the trumpet. He would blow the trumpet as loud as he could. And of course, this was quite a spectacle. This drew quite the altar call, which Mr. Lorenzo Dow would call a success. Now, he was an avid preacher. He was known he would preach up to three, four, five times a day, travel as many as 50 miles in a day when he happened to have one of the horses before he rode it to death. And uh, one year, it was said that he preached more than 800 times in the New Testament, or in the United States, not in the New Testament, in the United States. He never missed an opportunity to preach, and he also never needed an invitation 
to preach. He would just show up in public spaces and just open air and start preaching in the middle of town hall or in the middle of a city street or a busy intersection. He'd preach in people's barns and town halls. If a political rally was being held nearby, well, he would just bust up in it and start to speak louder than the candidates. He would just start his sermon in the middle of some civic event and just be louder than the people on stage or the event that was taking place. He would just capture the crowd with his eccentric style. Now, the formal churches of the day, they hated Lorenzo Dow. But the public absolutely loved him. He would draw crowds of hundreds or even to tens of thousands, and he preached to more individuals than any other gospel preacher of his era. Now, the Western territories were known that engaged couples would delay their wedding until he was traveling near their town. They wanted to be married by Lorenzo Dow and have a Lorenzo Dow marriage. There, they would even name their children after the wild man preacher. In fact, after he died, about you know, you know the nineteen or the eighteen fifty census, uh, Lorenzo was one of the most popular names in America of the time. People knew him; he was famous, he was well known, and people would travel to see the spectacle and even name their children after him. Chances are, if you got somebody in your family history named Lorenzo, they might very well have been named after Lorenzo, Lorenzo Dow or named after somebody who was named after Lorenzo Dow. He popularized the name. He was the famous Lorenzo that everybody would have known in the, uh, in the uh, post-revolutionary war America. Now he preached in every state and territory on the continent. He even got to travel to England and Ireland to take the show on the road, to pack it up and, and go over there and, and, uh, and show the British uh, exactly what was happening in America. And even in 1804, he was the first Protestant preacher to deliver a sermon in the Mississippi Territory that would now we'd know as Mississippi and Alabama. He was the first preacher in those two, what would later become those two states, but in that territory of the time. Now, he was quite a showman with his sermons, but he didn't shy away from a controversial subject. So he wasn't just a clown. He was also somebody who would, you know, take on the, the evils of the day. When he was traveling in the southern states, he preached against slavery, even while people threw food and rocks at him. And when he wasn't permitted to preach in the large local churches, he would just find a home in the outskirts churches or the, the black churches, and he would begin to preach on the corner of a busy intersection in town, which led to some of his arrests in South Carolina and even, be, uh, even his expulsion from the state of Georgia. Now, he would aggressively confront alcohol abuse, Catholicism, Jesuits, atheism, deism, Calvinism, and even universalism. He was an equal opportunity offender. Now, in his later life, Dow would write his autobiography and it would sell more copies than any other book except for the Bible itself. Everybody wanted to hear the crazy stories and the wild adventures of Lorenzo Dow. Now, 
in the writing of his autobiography, he talks about the hardship of obeying God in the face of persecution and, and being hated and his life on the road. And there he actually coins the English phrase that we still use today, which is damned if you do, damned if you don't. That's Lorenzo Dow's phrase. If you've ever heard it, if you've ever said it, that's you quoting Lorenzo Dow. He coined it. He was the first one to ever say it in his autobiography. And even his self-written grave epitaph reads, A Christian in the highest style of man. Boy, that's something to, to pat yourself on the back on, on your own gravestone. But he says, A Christian is the highest style of man. He is, no, he is slave to no sect, takes no private road, but looks through nature up to nature's God. A writer of his day talking about Lorenzo uh, quipped that if there was ever a man who feverishly rowed his boat through the waters of life with only one oar in the water, it was crazy Lorenzo Dow. That's how he was thought of. He was a, he was a, a minstrel. He was a showman. He was uh, a, a comic relief. He was one that was uh, just simply there to entertain. And yeah, he dealt with controversial issues and he got into some trouble. And it seems like he uh, most likely had his heart in the right place of wanting to do good, wanting to see the advancement of the common good, wanting people to hear the gospel and, and preaching against what he thought was falsehoods with deism and Calvinism and the different things. But in that, what we have to really look at is while his sacrifices and his antics are well-remembered, while it's part of folklore and even his showman influence still shows up in many denominations' style of worship and preaching, Lorenzo Dow never pastored a church, never made a disciple, no denomination claims him as one of their leaders, founders, or fathers, and no one continued his ministry. And despite even marrying, yes, somebody married that crazy guy, he never had a child to carry on the name. And so with that, when Lorenzo expired, so did his impact, so did his influence, so did everything about him. In fact, for the majority of you today, listening to this podcast is probably the first time you've ever heard of Lorenzo Dow. And to be honest with you, it's probably going to be the last time that you've heard the name Lorenzo Dow. Even if you live a long time, uh, people just don't dig through history. They don't tell the old stories anymore. They don't know where we've come from. And so with that, Lorenzo, without anybody to claim him, is probably going to fall into the you know dank, dusty pages of history never to be remembered. Now, it's one of those that where we can look at that and we can say, well, what was the lasting impact? What really did he contribute? What did he truly accomplish? And in that day, there may have been some accomplishments, but they all seem to fade away and are overshadowed by his showmanship, by his antics, by his weirdness, by the oddity, by the draw of, of what is going to happen next. What is the excitement? What's the adventure? What's the curiosity? And there was a grand curiosity with Lorenzo Dow. But we don't see that his ministry brought that same curiosity into the things of God, that it didn't make people hunger for the word of God, but rather just hunger to see the, see the show. 
And that's carried on over into modern uh, into the modern church, into modern charismatic movement, into the modern contemporary movement. Uh, you know, we've seen people preach sermons while laying in caskets. We've seen people, you know, run aisles and jump pews and shout and scream and and uh, carry on a manner of things. You know, people bring axes and sledgehammers onto the platform in order to destroy televisions or radios. Uh, you know, all of these wild adventures, you know, people driving motorcycles onto the pulpit in order to get attention and do these various things. Uh, people suspended by, uh, by zip lines and bringing out uh, little drummer boys in their Christmas programs to play the drums over the top of people and, and pastors swooping down to the pulpit on zip lines in order to take the stage and it is just silly after silly after silly, stupid following stupid and trying to outdo themselves to see how stupid you can be. And, uh, and everybody in this town is chasing around church to church to see what idiot is going to do something stupid next. That's what we've descended to. That's what a lot of modern churches have done. And so they've, they've lost any sense of tradition and they've tried to just simply become contemporary. Now, those two words, most of the time we only use those words in reference to our style of worship. And there's traditional worship, there's contemporary worship. What we have to understand is the meaning of those two words. Tradition just simply means something that is given to one generation by the preceding generation. So it's just handed down. One generation makes it a tradition. The way that the generation before us did it the way that they, they can still be alive and show us this. It becomes tradition. So for many traditional churches, for many traditional churches with traditional worship, what they are uh, practicing is what was practiced by those before them and those before them and those before them with a hope of tracing back what they're doing and into antiquity, into the founding, into the as far back as they can go to a time where they had it more right than we have it today. And guys, let me tell you, when you look at church history, when you read Founding Fathers, when you look at the Puritans, they had it much more right than we have today. They could write in a manner that we're not able to write in. The average American today has a sixth grade reading level. That's an adult. Adult Americans read at a sixth grade level. The Puritans were outrageously well read. They knew, you know, Greek and Hebrew and Latin. I mean, our, the founders of America, you know, your Thomas Jeffersons and such, man, they had read Plato and, and all of the Greek philosophers and they were well-versed. Anything, you know, they didn't go home and sit in front of the TV and veg out in front of the boob tube. They weren't listening to Luke Bryan and a bunch of idiots sing dumb songs. Um, these guys were filled with cl the classics. They were filled with, with thought and with reason. They had read the church fathers. They had read all of the old documents. They were in touch with the past. And so in that, they could write the most eloquent, most beautiful things. They had a use of language and could define words that we can't even spell today. And we want to plug into our tradition. We want to know where we came from. 
we believe that those who have gone before us are smarter than us. They know better. They learn lessons. They did things right. They did things wrong. And they figured it out. And over time, yeah, there's change. And over time, there can be growth. And over time, we can, we can perfect things. But that's what it means, tradition, is that it was given to us by those who have gone before us. Now, the word contemporary just simply means that it's alive at the same time. So those uh, brothers in Christ who are alive today are my contemporaries. And so I share a, a time frame. I share an era with them. And so contemporary churches just simply mean that they are trying to be like the day and the age in which they live. Contemporary music means that it's written during the lifetime of the people who are singing it. So it's basically saying we know better than those who have gone before us. This that we've created is better than what was before. We've got it more right and we are more wiser. We know things better than those who have gone before us. The old ways need to be thrown away. They're aged. They're decrepit. They're out of time with us. And we need to abandon that for what is modern, what is contemporary. And that's really what it comes down to is do we want to abandon where we've come from and think that we're wiser than they when we can't hardly even understand their books? I mean, you just read something that somebody who lived even 100 years ago wrote, and it's hard for people to read. You read the classics, read Swiss Family Robinson, Treasure Island, you know, some of these, and it's very hard for people today to read them because they've got to stop and sound out words or they've either got to skip over words or dig out a dictionary. Or Today, we don't even have dictionaries in our homes. We don't have uh, encyclopedias in our home. We just have the iPad and Google. And so we have to Google what a word means. And we found out in the past few years that the meaning of a word can change as often as the person who owns the website decides to change the meaning of the word. You can see some words change in real time. And so we're trusting modern and we're abandoning tradition. We're saying we're smarter than those who have come before us. And we're trying to build, you know, we're trying to build popsicle stick cabins on foundations that we have no idea how the foundations got there. And so uh, that's really what it comes down to. The church has abandoned tradition and gone after contemporary, just like Mr. Lorenzo. He thought it was stale. He thought it was boring for people to get in front of a church and to read the Bible and, and proclaim what it says. And he thought, well, what we really need is we need some showmen. We need some Billy Sunday up in here. We need to slide into third base and reenact great moments of a failed baseball career in order for us to, uh, you know, in order for us to get the people's attention. And so we've reduced ourselves to lures and bait to try to get people to come to church. So instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to draw men, instead of allowing the process of regeneration, what we've said is that we know better. We don't want to wait on God to do this stuff. And so how do we get a crowd? 
Maybe we have uh, an explosion Sunday, and man, you know, we, we, we dream up this big scenario, and, and here's how we're going to draw attention. Here's how we're going to set ourselves apart. Here's how we're going to make a name for ourselves. And, and so instead of the Christians evangelizing their friends, their neighbors, their relatives, their co-workers, instead, we're going to put on a circus. And we're going to get up there and, man, we're going to put on our best presentation. We're going to have a show like you've never seen before. Man, we're going to, we're going to do the PowerPoints. We're going to put video clips into the sermon. We're going to do just revival culture the best that we can possibly do. We're going to try to rely upon emotion-based decisions instead of Holy Spirit-drawn men. And we're going to try to whip them up. And so we're going to dim the lights. And we're going to play the music and we're going to reach high crescendos in the musical experience. And then we're going to drop it real low and get real quiet. And then we're going to continue to sing the same repetitive song over and over. And it's going to build in momentum and build in momentum and build in momentum. And man, we're really going to try to get them with the lights and the music and the smoke and everything. And what we've done is we've abandoned tradition and we've looked around at the modern concert circuit and we've said, what do they do? So what we've abandoned is instead of trying to draw people to the godliness of church, we're starting to try to draw them to the worldliness of it and say, you know, there's no reason for you to go to that old concert over there. It's bad but instead come to our bad concert that's kind of just like it. And so don't go to the good rock and roll. Rock and roll's bad. Um, instead, come over here and listen to our bad rock and roll while we put on karaoke singers and we have a, a, a B-minus cover band that can play the latest chart topper of you know some secular Christian artist who barely knows their Bible. And so you know the, the top five uh, albums right now on Billboard for Christian, two of them are Lauren Daigle albums. And Lauren Daigle can't decide if, Christ, if uh, homosexuality is a sin. That's not a Christian artist. If you don't know the Bible, that's not a Christian artist. And so, uh, you know, that's what we've done. We've taken it to a place of singing Hillsong and Bethel. And man, those aren't even churches. That's a concert venue in a pit of Satan. And that's all it is. But oh, well, the words are nice and I like the music. And so let's bring it in because it's contemporary. It's like the modern world. And, uh, and, and so let's have it over the tradition, over what we know, over time proven, over time tested over what more faithful saints than us sang and rejoiced and, and cried out to their God with. Let's find something different. And so we try to attract them with the worldliness of our music, not with the godliness of it, with the worldliness of our preaching style, not with the godliness of it, with the with the uh, presentation a certain way, with the clips and the videos and the jokes and the stories and the all of these type of things. Our, our church foyers have a merch table where we're selling CDs by the band and books by the pastor. And, and uh, we've got some goober comes out and, you know, with a t-shirt cannon firing t-shirts into the crowd. And, and that's what it is, man. We're just all trying to gauge them towards this fever pitch towards this emotion-based decision 
And, uh, and, and then at the same time, and it's really odd when Baptists do this because, you know, Baptists historically have believed in eternal security or once saved, always saved. And so we think that, you know, we can just get them whipped up into enough of an emotional state to where they repeat a prayer, which isn't in Scripture, and then they're saved for forever. Um, you know, if we can just get them down front and get them to repeat a prayer then, then uh, or fill out a card or go to the side room to meet with one of our poorly trained evangelism counselors or deacons, then, um, then all of a sudden their soul saved. They've made an eternal covenant and, uh, and there's no takesies, backsies. You know, I mean, even even buying a vehicle has a three day ride of rescission. But no, not at not at our concert venue churches. Churches, no taxi backsies, eternal security. Uh, you know, don't cross your fingers, don't cross your toes. You got to mean it for real this time. Just 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 repeat the prayer and uh, and, and then see you later. You know, as as long as we get the poll number, as long as we get to put you know another mark on the board. Maybe if you show up a few weeks later, we throw you in a cattle trough and give you a free T shirt and call it a baptism. Um, I mean, it's just really whatever we can do to drive the number, drive the experience, drive the hype, drive the insanity, drive that kind of a culture. And all it is, is a circus. It's just a show. Man, we've turned church into an event, nothing more than a concert at, at best and a bad theater at worst. I mean, that's all it is. The pastor gets us up there, he fakes cries and emotional thing and the lights fade and here comes in a video, you know, a video point that drives home the message. And I mean, it's nothing more than Sarah McLaughlin singing sad songs to get you to give a few bucks to these, you know, to an animal shelter. I mean, that's pretty much what the church experience has changed into. We've bastardized it. We've cheapened it, man. We have made it a truck stop hooker instead of the precious bride of Christ. Now, Robert Gottfried had a quote recently. He said, One of the besetting sins of our age is that we turned the church into a theater and we still think it's a church. The great Charles Spurgeon said it a lot better and a lot easier. And he said, if you have to give a carnival carnival to get people to come to church, then you have to keep giving carnivals in order to keep them coming back. Now, the problem with that is today, most of your pastors and worship leaders and youth pastors are clowns. And so they're comfortable with carnivals. They're really happy at a circus. And so to them, man, it was a great carnival. And so it's great because I enjoyed it. Worship was wonderful because I enjoyed it. But we know that worship doesn't depend on you. And the quality of worship is not for your discernment. That the object of worship that is receiving the worship is the one that determines if worship is good or bad. And so therefore, worship has to be the way that the one who is being worshipped demands to be worshipped. You have to worship God the way he desires to be worshipped. That's the second commandment of the Ten Commandments, guys. The first one says, get God right. The second one says, worship him the way he wants to be worshipped. It's foundational. It's clear. It's evident. But we've messed it up because the circus clowns invaded the ministry and they drew a crowd, and we thought that the crowd was the measure of effectiveness, and we thought the number of butts in the seats were the measure of a church, and we started basing it off of attendance and buildings and budgets and baptisms versus off of, is it holy? 
Is it sacred? Is this the way that God desires for it to be? Is the word of God proclaimed clearly and effectively and only the word of God? Man, we don't need to know about the pastor's week or his fishing trip or him walking through the woods with his dog or him working out in the gym as he receives this epiphany or he just reached this milestone. You know, we don't need to hear any of that crap. In fact, the pastor is irrelevant in the church. Okay, he could die on stage during the sermon and the Holy Spirit still move, people still get saved, worship, the the sound could cut out, the piano could fall apart, the guitar strings could pop off of the guitar, and guess what? People could still worship God. Those dudes on stage are unnecessary. Now, God gives the church pastors and preachers and evangelists and and prophets and apostles. God gives the church those. They are gifts. But at the same time, we have to understand that the Spirit of God may use the pastor, but the pastor is irrelevant because the Word of God is what convicts and the Holy Spirit is what regenerates man and the Holy Spirit's what leads man to the point of decision. And then once he is at that point of decision, if he goes forward with it, if he is now uh, sanctified, if he is now uh, entering into that process of salvation, then the Holy Spirit is what's going to keep him, preserve him, seal him, uh, lead him through the process of sanctification. It's all the Holy Spirit. So what room is there for us to glorify the clown? There is no room. And even a faithful pastor will be one who makes much of God and little of himself. No faces on billboards advertising the church. That's one of the surest signs that you're in a bad church is if your pastor's face is plastered everywhere. When every pitcher that promotes the church has his mug in it, Well, then he's trying to be a celebrity. God doesn't call us to celebrity. God calls us to sacrifice. And so in that, that, you know, if everything's about selling his book or selling his worship CD or selling these various things, if everything in the church is revolving around him and we have to plan things around him him and his children and his schedule and what he thinks is best, if, if what's served at the potluck is his favorite, if the desserts have to be his favorite, if he has to be front of the line, if everything is him, 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 then guess what? Your church is a church of him. It's not a church of God. It's not a church that makes much of God. And it's not a church of reverence and worship of God. It's a church of reverence and worship of the pastor, of the worship leader, of his style, his presence, his his, uh, ability to uh, look at the secular culture and replicate it and just make a bad version of it, to go to a rock concert and look around and, and say, oh man, those lights, though, that thing, this programming, uh, those speakers, that guitar, this setup of the stage, oh, this is what it's all about. Or, oh, we need those type of t-shirts. We need that hat. We need uh, these things. We need people uh, to get the card. You know, all of this, they're, they're going to shows and seeing how they can adapt their show to put on a better show. That's all they're doing. And we've become very comfortable with the carnival. 
and we've become very comfortable with the circus because we've just really enjoyed our clowns. And that's all they are. They've become the Lorenzo Dows. They're just not as good at him at it. They're not really willing to buy in and sleep in the woods and own one suit and travel around and be crazy to shout down the, the, uh, the political rally and start preaching the gospel. They're not willing to do the things to go full tilt crazy because, you know, you never, you never go full crazy. You just, you know, you have to tiptoe into it, be a little crazy, you know, put on a show, but, but don't ever really sell out to it and, and go full tilt crazy. And so that's what it's become is nothing more than a show, nothing more than a concert, nothing more than a theater. They've turned church into an event instead of what it really is. Church is a family gathering where the family of God comes together to sing songs to him about him. Not about me, not about our salvation. We sing songs to God about God. That's what praise is. That's what worship is. Songs about him to him. Not songs about me, not songs about you, not songs about us, not songs about our past, not songs about, no, songs about him to him. And then when it comes time for the word, the word preaches. Not the preacher uses a verse here and a verse, you know, three books over and a, another verse over here, maybe a phrase out of this one to tie it all back around but the word of God is on display and the word of God is allowed to speak and is allowed to move. And it's not PowerPoints and it's not funny stories and it's not illustrations and it's just the word of God. You know, we've gotten so here, here at our church, we've gotten so accustomed to the expository style of preaching that here, uh, man, it's probably been two, three months ago was, was preaching a sermon and, and man, just kind of felt like I wasn't quite being able to verbalize what I needed to verbalize to, to really explain the text. And I stopped and, and I told a story. And then right after that, I told another story to try to reinforce the point of the first story. And then went right back to the expository, went right back to the chapter, to the verse, and continued going. And man, afterwards, I felt so cheap. I felt like I had really let them down. I was like, man, you know, I came away. They learned more about Brother Jonathan this Sunday than they've ever learned uh, about me in any other service. And, uh, and man, I was like, man, that, that just, that's sad. And then, uh, you know, followed up with a church member, you know, a, a few minutes later, you know, after church dismissed and, you know, the crowd is dissipating and, and talking in the pews and talking in the foyer or outside or out at the playground with the kids and, and everything. And somebody come up and they were like, you know, that's the first time I've ever heard you tell a story in Sunday sermon. And I was like, yeah, I know. And they were like, I could tell something was wrong because you told a story that we try to make so much of the word of God that we make so little of Brother Jonathan. And so in that, it's about what does God want? What does God desire? What does God want from us? What, what gives him the most glory and him the most uh, adoration and at the same time minimizes me and minimizes you and to where church isn't about you and you don't go because you like it. You go because... You're making much of God. You're worshiping him. And there you're learning the word of God. No jokes, no gimmicks, no stories, no illustrations. And what'll, you know, what'll happen is if a, if a preacher is very honest, if they, in a sermon, give an illustration 
nine out of 10 people are going to remember the illustration and not the sermon. They may remember a catchphrase. They're not going to remember the word. And so what will happen is the next time that they go through that passage of Scripture, they're not going to remember anything because they didn't learn the passage of Scripture. They weren't educated in it, but rather they were just entertained by it. And they forget the entertainment very quickly. So we should sing songs that glorify God. We should glorify God in the preaching of his word. And then lastly, we should be surrounded by our family, not just by a big crowd of strangers who enjoy the same show, but we should know each other's names. We should know each other's occupations. We should know each other's preferences and likes or our backgrounds, our histories, our testimonies. Those things should be brought to the very forefront of it. That that should be the gathering of the saints should not be just a collection of strangers in a concert hall. Because if I go to a concert, I don't even want to talk to the people around me. I'm there for the concert. I'm there for the show. The stage is the big attraction. In the church of God, the people are part of the show. The people are part of the reason why we're there. The big thing why we're there is God and God alone. But then also, we love God's family because they're the family of God. And we're not first in, first out, or last in, first out. We're not, you know, as close as we can get to the door so we can get out of there before anybody tries to talk to us. Um, You know, we shouldn't sit there around people and wait for 10 minutes for the service to start and not say a word. But rather, we should engage with our fellow believers. We should be a family, whether that's a church of 50, a church of 100, a church of 500, a church of 1,000. You should know the people you go to church with. You should be actively engaged in the lives of the people you go to church with. And as churches get bigger, you can't be engaged in everybody's life, but you should relatively know everybody. You should you know, at least be on a first-name basis with a, a good chunk of the church. It's nothing for you to know 100 or 200 people's names, especially if you're in a small town. Nobody moves in, nobody moves out. There's only four last names in that booger. You should know everybody. All right, everybody, somebody's cousin, brother, sister, something. So there's no room for gossip because they'll hear about it. And so we should have that, that, that closeness because we've spent time around each other. And we've also spent time in common worship where we sing songs to God. We didn't listen to the karaoke band sing songs at us, but we sing songs to God. That's part of the reason with the hymnal. What makes the hymnal so superior to contemporary? Contemporary throws the words on the screen, but you don't know what's coming next. You don't know how many times that booger's going to want to sing those same seven words over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. But with the hymnal, we all know exactly what we are going to sing. And you should be singing. You should be engaged in the worship. If not, you just had a bad concert, man. That's it. And if we believe that rock and roll is, is bad, then we shouldn't just come into the church house and do rock and roll bad. You know, just do a bad version of it. That'd be like saying, you know, drinking wine is bad, but uh, drinking Boone's Farm is okay. It's just bad wine. And most modern secular cultural, you know, secular Christian music is just bad rock and roll. It's just bad 90s. It's just bad 80s music is all it is. 
it's just listening to you know the top hits and then somebody else tries to make a wish.com version of it you know just a cheap knockoff and and uh, and that's what it sounds like it sounds like cheap knockoffs and most of it if we were theologically literate and if we were biblically literate we would be able to listen to the words of the song and go well that's just stupid that don't even make sense or you know what one you know, one time and on our way to church we were listening to the radio to the christian radio on the way in and, uh, and, and, you know, a song comes on and my wife said, oh, I love this song. And I said, oh, that's great. You know, and was listening to it, turned it up a, a, a degree or two and, and sitting there listening to it and it ends. And I said, you know what? Never once did it say God or Jesus. And she said, do what? And I said, it never said God or Jesus. I said, it was a Christian song, but it was, it was about life, but it wasn't about God or Jesus. This isn't a worship song. And then a week or two later, we went to a, to a corporate worship events event with multiple churches present, and they sang that song. And you go, well, that's not a worship song at all. That's just a secular Christian song is all it is. And so we have to be much more discerning. Now, the thing is, is that we have to realize the pastor is not a celebrity. And guess what? God doesn't need celebrities. He doesn't need them. He doesn't need them at all. And now we can look back in Scripture and we can see our Elijahs and our Moseses and these, these men who had tremendous cultural impact, which, by, by the way, Elijah thought he was the only, the only Hebrew left. So, you know, he, he didn't think he was um, famous. He was more infamous. And he was like, God, it's just me and you. Just take me home. Let's end this thing, you know. And, and God says, nah, man, I, I got several thousand just like you. Don't, don't think you're too special. And so even Elijah wasn't living for celebrity. He was living to confront secular culture around him and, and to denounce it, to be very different from it. And so to make a distinction between it and him. But we live in a day and an age to where, man, we think that we're doing great because, you know, Black China gets you know, baptized or, you know, Justin Bieber says he makes a profession of faith. But, you know, his pastor is the one who's wearing shorts showing off his private parts, you know, the first you know quarter of his private part hanging out the top of it and gets called in a, having an a extramarital affair uh, with a, a lady in, in the city in which he pastors the church and all this kind of junk. Oh, and now he pops back up because after all, carnivals love clowns and a good clown is hard to find. And so you put the best clowns you can on stage. And so now he's at some, I think, Transformation Church or something like that. Oh, Carl Lentz. And, uh, and what a joke. What a joke. But we don't need these celebrities. We don't need them is the thing. So we don't need the Kanye's, the Black China's, the Justin Bieber's. It doesn't matter how many celebrities except Christ. That's not what is going to win the lost world. Now, I don't know if there's a more beloved celebrity in the Christian community than Tim Tebow. And so um, if you worship at the golden altar of Tim Tebow, now might be the time to hit the pause button because I have something very... Uh, very critical to say about Tim, Tim Tebow. For all of the good, and I think he's a good dude, I really do, and for all of the moral purity and for all of the, 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 the goodness that is in him, Tim Tebow would have had more of an impact on the world if he had had 10 sons and raised them just like him versus chasing a baseball career 
versus sitting on a platform talking about football versus any of that. If he would have had 10 sons and raised them just like him, which, by the way, is kind of what Scripture says for us to do, uh, is to have children and raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. If Tim Tebow would have gotten busy at being Daddy Tim versus Celebrity Tim and not postponed marriage, not chased you know, after accolades and try to become a famous celebrity, star, athlete, all of this kind of stuff, Tim Tebow would have done more for the cause of Christ, raising 10 sons named, Tim, named Tebow than he has with all that he's accomplished. And guess what? He wouldn't have had to give up that dream of, you know, man, you know, playing in the Broncos and the Patriots and going to the Mets and, and all of that kind of stuff. He wouldn't have had to give up any of that. And he still could have been Daddy Tim. But that's what we that's what happens when we take a secular approach and we just have biblical morals, but a secular approach to life. Those two don't measure up. Those two don't coexist. We have to have a biblical approach to life, a biblical worldview, and then we can pursue it with all that we have. And biblical morals falls into that. I mean, you can't have a biblical worldview without biblical morals. But in that, to try to divorce the two, that's what this celebrity culture tries to do, is you be like the world just with some Christian morals. Just sprinkle some Jesus on top of your idiocy on your lostness. Just be a good, moral, wholesome person who's just like the world. That's not what God calls us to, man. And so in that, what we want to do is we don't want to spend our lives being Lorenzo Dow. We don't want to get to the end of it and people talk about the accolades, people name their kids after us, people wait for wedding ceremonies so that we can do it, so that we can bless it because we're the celebrity and we're the big deal and we're the star of the show. We don't seek after any of that because at the end, we end our lives as shallow and as pointless as Lorenzo Dow did. He was once the biggest celebrity in all of America, and you didn't even know his name. You probably even read To Kill a Mockingbird and never even picked up who Lorenzo Dow was or didn't even care who he was. Lorenzo, even though he married, never had a son never had a child, nobody to carry on. He never had an Elisha to his Elijah, Elijah, somebody to pick up the mantle and follow after him and, and keep going with what he was doing. There was no church founded. There was no memorial set up. There was no ministry, uh, missionary society, nothing. He died with just the money in his pocket from selling his book of his wild adventures of crisscrossing the country and doing his wild antics. And then he faded into obscurity. That's not how we want to live our lives. So in that, let's not pursue the crowd. Let's not pursue the glitter. Let's pursue the gold of God. Let's not cheapen the church into a circus, but rather let's make it what it is, a glorious family worshiping and adoring a glorious God, just like all the generations did before us. Let us carry the torch. Let us carry that fire. Let us be faithful in all things so that God can give us much to be faithful in. Until then, friends, until next time, this has been Brother Jonathan at the Woodshed, where we tell the truth even when it hurts. 
Now's a good time to hit that like button, hit that share button, leave us a review, especially the written reviews uh, really count a lot into the algorithm, helps push us up the board. We have topped over several milestones here recently. It's really taken off and we thank you, the listener, for that. You're the one that makes us uh, successful by sharing with other people, by uh, promoting it, you know, hitting the like button, texting out the link to a friend, hitting the share button and sending it in Messenger, leaving us those reviews, especially the written reviews. And uh, those really play in a lot and help us be successful. So friends, until next time, make much of Christ and he will give you much. Thank you.